Well, you may be wondering why we are doing Ruth and Esther together in one series. Ruth and Esther were drastically different people. One was a Moabite widow who lived during the days of the judges, and the other is a Jewess living in a tumultuous time of exile and oppression in Persia. However, their experiences cover a plethora of human tragedies, from emptiness to exile, from barrenness to rape, from depression to the threat of defeat. Both women were marginalized members of society who on their own were vulnerable and exposed to the dangers of a cold and dark world. Ruth faced an empty home with the memories of a dead husband, the loneliness of childlessness, and the care of a mourning mother-in-law. Esther faced the carnal lust of of a depraved emperor in a land where persecution was commonplace. And yet, even in Ruth's emptiness and Esther's exile, God is the reigning king. Their emptiness and their exile doesn't stop his promises from marching forward. In their deepest sufferings, God was doing a work that would change the course of history and lead to the coming Messiah through whom all suffering would end. Now, the relevance of these books should be clear to us. We, like Ruth, Ruth, have our own fair share of emptiness. Generations after Ruth, our hearts still break as we hold the hand of a dying spouse. As we bury husbands and wives, as we say goodbye to children who die too soon, as we suffer through infertility and painful disappointments. In our suffering, we know all too well what it's like to feel Naomi's lament. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Who hasn't at times felt as if God's providence hasn't turned against them? In our weakest moments, we as humans, just as being a part of of the human experience, sometimes feel as if the Lord has shut himself off from us. And that's just the book of Ruth. Generations after Esther, we understand what it means to live in a world of political turmoil The weak and poor suffer as the world's superpowers squabble endlessly for more power. What the Bible calls oppression, the world's society calls a policy. In a postmodern world that is constantly questioning the relevance of God, we as Christians know what it is like to be marginalized. That said, Ruth and Esther have more to offer us than we might initially think. These books are not romance novels. They are records of God's redemptive work. And if we listen carefully, both books will teach us that even when God seems hidden or distant or silent, his sovereign hand is moving behind the curtain of our suffering to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And the end is always the same for God's people. We are satisfied and we are saved. That is what the stories of Ruth and Esther tell us, that when God moves, even when he's hidden, even when he's silent, his sovereign hand always works to satisfy and save his people. My friends, you sit here 
And some of you know what it is like to wonder, where in the world is God? In his hiddenness, he has not left you to fend for yourself. You don't face the world in your own vulnerability. Hidden though his hand may be, he is silently working in the shadows of our hardships to bring his promises to fruition. He has not abandoned us, and he never will. My goodness. I've preached at a few different churches uh, over the last year, and typically my favorite churches are the ones that are saying amen at that point. God has not abandoned us, and he never will. And God's people said, there you go. At least affirm it's true. But before beginning our journey through these amazing books, I think it's helpful to get a lay of the land, right? We, when we approach a book of the Bible, it's sometimes just helpful to kind of figure out where we're at. So today is just an overview. We're just getting a theological roadmap, so to speak. Though they are quite distinct books, probably written by different authors in different times, Ruth and Esther share a lot of the same redemptive themes. And recognizing these themes not only help us to understand the message of each book, but it helps us to see the gospel as it saturates each book. And though there are probably more, I will highlight four of the most prominent themes found in the book, in each of these books. Now, the first theme that rises to the surface is simply this. Life is bitter in this fallen world. Life is bitter in this fallen world. The book of Ruth takes place in the days when the judges ruled, which means that we must read it in the context of all the brokenness, all the covenant infidelity that is happening in the book of Judges, right? So if you read the book of Judges, lots of bad stuff is happening. God's people are chasing after idols. They're acting like Sodom and Gomorrah in lots of ways. It's, it's just a broken time. And then add to that, that outside nations are coming in to invade Israel, to raid and take away uh, Israelites as captives. It's a terrible time. Ruth opens with a famine that is apparently severe enough to drive Elimelech to leave Bethlehem and to seek refuge in Moab, of all places. Moab wasn't a great place to live. If you know the story of the Moabites, they're the offspring of Lot, and his daughter, when he got drunk in the cave, not a great start to this people group, right? And they continue to be the, the enemies, the antagonists against God's people throughout all the biblical storyline. And so he moves to Moab, of all places, where he tragically dies. Like, this story just keeps getting worse, right? National turmoil, you think you've got it hard now. Judges was way worse. Elimelech leaves because of a famine, and then dies. His two sons decide to marry in Moab. They decide to marry Moabites. They're married for 10 years. Neither son has children of their own. And then both boys die. And so Naomi is left without a husband, without sons to care for her. If you know anything about widowhood in the ancient world, you know that to live as a widow meant living in absolute vulnerability and oftentimes poverty, right? It's not, we don't have, the, they didn't have the social systems that we have today with life insurance policies where your widow might be taken care of. No, we're talking about 
When the husband dies, the widow is cut off from any kind of hope of prosperity, any kind of hope of abundance. This is a terrible, terrible situation. The worst of all situations for Naomi. No husband, no sons, no grandchildren, ergo no future. It's over. Her life is done. All that's left for her is to leave her daughters in Moab, her daughters-in-law in Moab, and to return home to die alone. Maybe she might find some of the grace in her own people to eat on a regular basis. And so we come to the story in Ruth 1, and we see this massive tragedy. Her whole family's dead. She pleads with her daughters-in-law to leave her, to return back to their mother's houses, where they might have a future still. Maybe they can get remarried in Moab. Orpah tends to see this, the logic of this, right? If you left your homeland, if you leave your mother's house, and you leave your people's gods, then you are stepping out into a world on your own. You don't have their protection. You don't have their promise of provision. You're stepping out on your own. So Orpah realizes, I need to go back. I need to stay with my mom, and I need to be under my homeland gods. Ruth, on the other hand, clings to Naomi and cries out to her to not send her back. It's that famous statement, your people will be my people, your God, my God. And the two come back together. She eventually persuades Naomi that it's okay. She can stay. Now, when Naomi left Judah, this may sound redundant, she had a husband and two sons and a future. She comes back with nothing, no future. And so all she has to show for her 10-year journey off into outside the promised land is a Moabite daughter-in-law, which in Ruth, in Naomi's estimation means she has nothing, nothing. A Moabite daughter-in-law is not going to get her anything in the promised land. She's absolutely empty-handed. Have you ever felt that way before where you once felt like you were full, your arms were full, happy house, hugging loved ones, and now your hands are empty? Empty nesters sometimes feel that way. People who have lost children sometimes feel that way. People who have lost spouses sometimes feel that way. Arms once full, now empty-handed. If you do know what that feels like, then you understand that Naomi was undergoing a great deal of emotional turmoil when she said, call me Mara. In other words, call me the bitter one. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Do you hear who brought her back empty? She believes that in all of this tragedy, it's the Lord behind this calamity. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Those of you who have suffered understand what Naomi is saying. Well, the book of Esther adds to this theme of brokenness. Not long before our story begins, the Jews witness the horrific destruction of their city, of their nation as a whole, Jerusalem, completely destroyed under the conquest of an evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. There wasn't a Jew that hadn't seen a friend or a family member slaughtered in the streets. And then to add salt to the wound, Nebuchadnezzar decides to bring all the captives back to live in Babylon with him. So homeless, 
mourning, broken. The prophets describe Israelites coming into Babylon. They hang their harps on the willow trees, meaning that we're never going to sing again. We're so sad, so depressed that we can't ever imagine the day of feasting ever again. And as the book of Daniel shows, Babylon's massive empire falls before the Persian empire. So by the time we come to Esther, God's people have been through quite the ordeal. Broken nation, exile, two different world powers governing over them. Persia, by the time of Esther, is ruled by an arrogant and power-hungry tyrant named Ahasuerus. There's all kinds of different ways to say that. The Hebrew doesn't sound anything like that. Some of you might recognize his name as Xerxes. Now, let me just tell you who Xerxes is. Okay, first off, if you've ever seen Hollywood movies on Esther, scratch them out. They get it all wrong, okay? Hollywood has recast the story of Esther as a romance novel. Kind of like this ancient version of The Bachelor, right? So you get this kind of hot Persian king walking around, this six-pack abs, no shirt, and he's kind of dating all these ladies, and he stumbles across Esther, and she catches his eye, and then they get married. Scratch that. That's not Xerxes, and that's not what happened. Xerxes is the same Persian king, the bloodthirsty, invasion-crazed emperor that fought King Leonidas, the Greek King Leonidas, the 300 Spartans. That's the Persian king that fought him. Xerxes burned Athens to the ground. Xerxes had any whiff of kind of political opposition, they lost their heads. I mean, that's, that's who Xerxes was. Esther hints at Xerxes' arrogance in chapter 1 as he throws a feast to himself. The whole kingdom stops to see and honor his own royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness. Now, at the same time, his wife had planned a girl's night out, right? King's going to throw a feast, so this is a good time for a girl's night out. Xerxes, completely lit and hammered, decides that he's going to call his wife in the middle of the night and say, scratch your girl's night out. I want you to come here and showcase how good looking you are in front of all my buddies. Well, Queen Vashti decides, nope, not going to do it. Not placating. What does he do? Well, like any good husband, right? He divorces her and kicks her out of the kingdom. And those are the events that kick off the book of Esther. If it couldn't get worse, the command is given that all the young women in the kingdom are to be gathered. The actual Hebrew word there is collected. Now, this is where it really begins to get heavy. And your, your childhood version of Esther might just come crashing down here. All the young women, soldiers are sent out. Young women are dragged out of their houses in the middle of the night and brought to the king. The woman, and I'm not going to get too graphic, so don't, don't worry about that. The woman who pleased the king would then become the queen. So again, this isn't an ancient version of The Bachelor. When Esther was taken, she was taken, if you look at chapter 2, verse 9, into the king's harem. I don't think I have to describe what a harem was. But it's, it's easy to say this. The king's relations with Esther were far from consensual. She didn't have a choice. She's taken by a foreign king into his 
harem, and now she exists. Her whole life has been ruined, and now she exists for nothing more than to satisfy the king's carnal cravings. That's why she was brought to Xerxes. The true story of Esther, as it is seen in the Bible, is messy and filled with brokenness. Absolute depravity. Now you add to this the background that in Persia, there are tons of vengeful persecutors like Haman who wanted nothing less than the complete annihilation of the Jews and the bitter brokenness only deepens. My friends, scripture does not sugarcoat or whitewash its description of the fall. Some of you have experienced the brokenness of this fallen world. Both Ruth and Esther teach us that bitterness and brokenness are a reality of living in this age. That is the characteristic of this age. Life is messy. Life is tumultuous. It's even dangerous. Famines, death, loss, depression, frustrations, and fears. Those are all normative. Those aren't abnormal. Those are normal parts of life. If you face a future filled with uncertainty, Ruth understands your fears. She knows what it is like to not know where her next meal is coming from. She knows what it is like to be an outsider. She knows what it is like to care for a depressed family member who just wants to die. She has even struggled with infertility. Her experience with suffering is vast. And yet she offers you hope. The Bible tells us that in this world, powerful men like Xerxes take advantage of young women like Esther. And sadly, church, we have been silent on this far too much. Churches have covered this up. Politicians have covered this up. Our nation has covered this up. Can I just say this bluntly and boldly here? There is no place on earth that hasn't been impacted by this harsh reality. Sexual scandals and sexual abuse have invaded our churches, our schools, the counseling office, and homes. And there are people that are sitting in this congregation that experience some of the most trusted people on earth doing what ought never have been done. Pastors, mothers, fathers, politicians, teachers, taking advantage of the weak, threatening them into silence. Can I just tell you, if that's you, Esther holds out her hand to you. She knows what it's like to be forced into that kind of predicament. She knows what it's like to have that kind of wound in her past. And the fear of not being able to say no. Esther holds out her hand. And she knows your pain. And she wants to take you to the comforter. To the one that can heal even that. Even that. And so, we come to Ruth and Esther asking these faithful, suffering women to point us forward to where healing can be found. Life is bitter. Life is broken. But that's not the end of the story. 
Ruth and Esther not only show us a real and honest picture of the fallen world, they also tell us where we can find refuge. Even in her tragic loss, Ruth knows where to run. As Naomi presses her to run back to her mother's house and implicitly back to her Moabite gods, Ruth runs instead to the Lord. She seeks refuge in Yahweh. As will be seen as we come to Ruth 1, as I've already mentioned, when you leave your homeland, you leave all provision. You leave all security of uh, of any kind of future. If you left your homeland, gods, the thought was you were stepping out to face life on your own. Orba doesn't take the chance. And as Naomi says, she returns back to her people and to her gods. It's just too risky to leave that kind of guarantee of safety. Ruth, on the other hand, clings to Naomi and cries out, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Now, this isn't just loyalty to Naomi. I think far too often we, we, we communicate this as if, as if Ruth just deeply loves Naomi and can't leave her. Yes, Ruth loves Naomi, but Ruth loves Naomi's God even more. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. There's her love for Naomi. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She shirks away any kind of hope that her Moabite gods will continue to protect her and help her. The implication is that she's rejecting her homeland. She's rejecting her own safety, her own security, and her Moabitess identity altogether. She's essentially saying, I'm going to become Israelite with you so that I can have Yahweh, so that I can have God. When Boaz meets Ruth for the first time and is filled, he blesses and praises her, saying, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You realize that in the days of the judges, Ruth is doing what many of the Hebrewites were not doing. The Hebrewites, the Hebrews, were not doing. Israelites, Hebrewites, whatever. Most of them were bowing down to other gods, right? If you read the book of Judges, most of them were turning away and chasing after Moabite idols and Ammonite idols, but Ruth is actually running in the opposite direction and runs to Yahweh. She might not know exactly what her next meal will be, but she knows that it will come from God. She might not know exactly how things are going to work out for her and Naomi, but she trusts that Yahweh is more than a sufficient shelter. He is the perfect provider, and she can run, even as a Moabitess, under his wings and find rest. You hear just the implicit message of our God. Our God is so tender, so kind, so welcoming, so open that even a Moabitess, we're going to talk about this in days to come. The Moabites were the chief of sinners, the Old Testament Nazis. They were despicable people. And even a Moabitess can find refuge under the wings of God. Esther tells a similar story. When the ruthless Haman convinces the king to pass a genocidal policy, effectively threatening the life of every Jew in the kingdom, Esther and Mordecai model absolute faith in God. They may be far from home, they may be in exile in a pagan nation, but God's sovereignty extends even there, and they know it. Mordecai, 
upon hearing the proclamation, ordering the mass murder of Jews, joins his people in fasting. Fasting is a time when you stop eating and pray. In this case, in the book of Esther, they just stop eating and throw themselves before God. He petitions his cousin, Esther, who's the queen, to intervene on their behalf, but knows that ultimately that salvation will come from God, not from Esther. Listen to his message to Esther. It's, it's, it's extremely blunt about his faith in God. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Do you hear that? For Mordecai, there's no question. Ruth, you do nothing, or Esther, you do nothing, and God will still save us. It's not dependent on you. If you sit in the palace and do nothing, you'll die, but God will save the people. That was Mordecai's faith. God will bring salvation, whatever means possible. God has a plan. Esther, however, has an opportunity to be the instrument of rescue. She has an opportunity to step in and love her people well, but God's not dependent on Esther. God will save his people. He will not let his covenant people be destroyed. By one way or another, salvation will come, no matter what. The question in the book of Esther, however, is how? Esther finally agrees to help. She was somewhat reluctant at the beginning, it seems. Calls the people to fast, which includes praying on her behalf. And then she resigns her life over to God, the only one that can save it. You hear it in the way that she says it. If I go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Do you hear that resignation? That trust, that absolute close your eyes and jump into the hands of God. Esther takes 100% refuge in the Lord. I perish, I perish. That's his will. She throws herself onto the will of a good and kind covenant-keeping God. Now, Psalm 62 captures this kind of faith and hope, which Ruth and Esther model for us. Just listen to the text that was read before I got up here. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. And in their example, we also hear the clear, the clear exhortation. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. My friends, even with a broken past, even with a fearful future, we have a sure and steady refuge in God. You look at the news feed, you think back in horror at what has happened to you in your own life. You look ahead and there's nothing but trepidation. My friends, let me just say it again. We have a sure and steady refuge in God. He cannot be broken and therefore neither can we. He's our great healer. He's our great husband. He's our great redeemer. He's the great Lord and King who stands watch over his people. My friends, whether you feel empty 
or in famine, God is your refuge. If you're in exile and face a threat of death, God stands as the great deliverer. Therefore, O people of God, trust in him. Trust in him. Simple message. Another theme that appears in the book of Ruth and Esther is the theme of God's hidden providence. God's hidden providence. Emphasis on the hidden. In both Ruth and Esther, God moves in the shadows. If you notice, the book of, Reth, book of Ruth, Rester, that's going to be a new term that we're going <laughs> to... Just to save time, if I say Rester, it's Ruth and Esther, okay? But if you notice in the book of Ruth, the, the direct action of God is mentioned only twice. It's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 6. Now, God's name is mentioned more than that, but his direct action is mentioned only twice. 1, 6, when uh, God intervenes on behalf of his people. And then in 4, 13, when he opens Ruth's womb. That's, that's the only two times God is mentioned in this four-chapter drama of actually direct uh, action. Other than that, other than those two instances, the book of Ruth is silent about God's work in, Naomi, in Naomi's life and Ruth's life. Absolutely silent. It's, it's especially profound. God's silence is especially profound when Naomi publicly claims that God has turned against her. Now, as you're reading the book of Ruth and you hear Naomi lament, God has turned against me. The Lord Almighty has, has brought this calamity upon me. You half expect this Job-like moment where God appears and says, and gives the whole, where were you speech? But he doesn't do that. My friends, the, the appearing to Job and explaining where were you and here's my sovereignty, that doesn't happen for most of us. That happened for Job, and praise God it did, because we get a record of it. But for most of us, when we don't see where God is working, and we petition God to show up and explain things to us, that doesn't happen. And it didn't happen for Naomi. Naomi is left, at least for the time being, in her bitterness and in her mourning. And yet, as the book of Ruth progresses, this just subtly, we discover that there are things in motion that Naomi could not see. She sees the death. She remembers the grave of her husband and the grave of her sons. She faces the reality of having no heirs to take care of her. That's what she sees. And yet there's something even bigger happening than that. And it all seems accidental. And the author of Ruth makes it out as if it's pure happenstantial. Because he wants you to kind of see and highlight the fact that God is working even if it looks like by mere chance to us. After arriving in Bethlehem, Ruth tells her mother-in-law that she's going out to glean. If you don't know what gleaning is, the poor and widow gleaned. And what they did was they would take baskets or bags out to the field and they would pick up whatever was left on the ground from harvest time. And that was their meal. It was a way to guarantee that they wouldn't starve to death. So she goes out to glean. And as she's gleaning, so she steps out of the house and she starts gleaning. We don't know how long she's been gleaning. But she, and this is used in the book of Ruth, happens across Boaz's field. Now, anytime you see the word happens in the Old Testament, it's a very clear indicator. It was accidental to her, to her, but not to God. Okay? And behold, so you got the happens and behold. She, she happens across Boaz's field and behold, Boaz arrives on the scene at the right time. Now, if you do watch romance novel, watch romance novels, read romance novels, 
or you watch Hallmark, um, which I will never admit from the pulpit that I do because I don't, right? Football games and Jason Bourne movies all the way. But if you watch romance uh, movies, you know that this is called a serendipity, right? You know what a serendipity is, right? The, the lady steps off the train, the guy's stepping out of the, the bathroom, and a paper flies by, and they both reach to grab it, and their hands meet, and boom. It's a coinky dink. It's a serendipity, right? Just this chance, unplanned meeting, and then they fall in love, right? I mean, uh, what's that one? Uh, uh, insomniac in Seattle, what's that one called? Uh, there you go. That's, that's a serendipity, right? Unplanned chance happens to be two people who actually do fall in love with the, in each other. And the point of a serendipity is, is, is absolutely accidental, not planned, not expected chance. But in the Bible, there are no accidents and there are no chances. This is a sovereign serendipity. Ruth and Boaz didn't know they would meet that day, but the Lord did. Ruth happened to cross Boaz, Boaz's field, and Boaz happened to be there at the right time, but the Lord was working sovereignly to bring them together in his own sovereign plan. Even seemingly happenstantial events fall under the reign of our sovereign God and ultimately fits perfectly into his redemptive plan. As we come to the book of Esther, God is not mentioned at all not even once. You will not find the name of God in the book of Esther at all. This awkward fact has caused many to stumble and struggle with Esther's theological message. How can there be a theological message in a book where there's no Theo, where there's no God? However, just because God is not mentioned does not mean that he was not actively saving his people. Quite the contrary, the author uses the awkward silence to highlight God's active sovereignty. God may not be seen or heard in the events of Haman's fall, but he is the one who is accomplishing the Jews' salvation nevertheless. In literature, you've got to pay attention to the active and passive, right? So you guys know the difference between active and passive. I put my Bible onto the, the platform, right? Um, that's active. Passive would be the Bible was put onto the platform, right? And there's an implicit by someone. Someone did that. It, the Bible didn't just grow legs and walk itself up here, right? Somebody put it up here. Well, the author uses those pregnant passives in a really profound way. They're all over the book of Esther. God's name may not be mentioned, but the impl implication is somebody did this. Somebody was working these things out. For example, when Mordecai tells Esther that if she does nothing, deliverance will come from another place, one is left asking what makes Mordecai so confident. If Ruth doesn't bring, if Ruth, if Esther doesn't bring this deliverance, then who's going to? Where's it going to come from? Who does he think is going to bring salvation? And when he says, and who knows whether you have come up to the kingdom for such a time as this, he seems to be implying that Ruth's exaltation to the queenly throne was according to a plan. Her convenient rise to power at such a time as this is not all that coincidental. It's not a coinkydink that she's queen at the time that Haman wants to kill them. Somebody is pulling the strings. Somebody is orchestrating the plan. Now here's the question. Who is the orchestrator? 
who is the puppet master. Who allowed the Jewess Hadassah to become the Queen Esther right at the right moment that this edict goes out to kill everybody? One more example. When Haman falls, Mordecai becomes the prince in Haman's place and issues an edict that gives the Jews the right to defend themselves. And the result is a complete reversal of fortune. In uh, chapter 9, verse 22, Mordecai establishes the Feast of Purim, right, which is still celebrated this day, in order to commemorate the month that had been turned. Now, in English, that may not, that may not stick out to you. In Hebrew, the word is reversed, and it's an active verb here. Like it's, it's passive in the sense of somebody did this, but it's not just coincidental that it turned. The month had been turned, reversed for the Jews from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. Someone reversed Israel's mourning and fasting into light and gladness and joy and honor. Now, who was that? Who is responsible for this reversal? Mordecai doesn't take any credit for it at all in the book of Esther. Esther herself doesn't take any credit for it. And Mordecai seems to say, Esther, you're just a tool in somebody else's hand to work out our salvation. So the question is, who is responsible? One commentator argues that Esther 9.22 is as close as the narrator comes to mentioning God directly as the author of deliverance. The point is this. Even if God seems hidden or distant, we can trust that he is always working to accomplish his promises. My friends, you may not see God. You may not hear God. Your eyes may not be able to exactly point out where the hidden hand of God is working. My friends, trust this. God's hand is always moving. Sometimes the curtains are shut Sometimes the curtains are open. Sometimes we, sometimes we have books like Ruth and Esther where we don't see anything that God is doing. And sometimes we have books like Exodus where God does it all. But the point is, curtain shut or curtain open, God's hand is moving. He's the key actor in all of this. He is the one that's moving the stage pieces. He's the director. He is working always. My friends, we have moments in our lives when God seems distant or hidden. Even if we're not in times of suffering, sometimes it just feels that way. Where was God when tragedy struck? Where was God when the doctor came in the room with a gloomy diagnosis? Where was God when the final shovel of dirt was thrown on the grave of our loved one? Where's God now in this nation of chaos, turmoil? The books of Ruth and Esther implore you to trust that behind every suffering, a hidden hand of God, hidden hand of sovereignty is moving in your life, in your family, in your loss, in your sickness, in your diagnosis, is moving and moving you closer to the fulfillment of his promises, moving you closer to the accomplishment of redemption. And so, as people of God, it is possible we may not see God's redemption in this lifetime. We may not see God's hand revealed in this lifetime. Few have, 
you will. And yet, as God's people who put full faith in the Lord of redemption, we patiently wait knowing that God's hand, hidden hand will one day be revealed. As Paul puts it, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. When the curtain's finally pulled back. No more hidden hand, but the direct hand of God. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have already been fully known. While hidden now, God's redemptive purposes will one day be made manifest. Can you imagine how good that is? When that that miscarriage finally works to show God's redemption... When that sexual abuse, even that nasty, sour sexual abuse works to show where God's hidden hand was working. One day his hidden hand will be revealed. A final theme, and this one will go pretty quick on because we're going to spend weeks looking at it, is that in both Ruth and Esther, we find the truth that a great reversal is coming. A great reversal is coming. In Ruth, Naomi mourns that she went away full and returned empty-handed. And in many ways, the story of Ruth tells the story of how Naomi's emptiness eventually is filled. She is empty-handed, coming back from Moab. And then Ruth goes to Boaz on the threshing floor, ask ask him to redeem her. And then he says to her, before she leaves, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Why would he do that? That seems strange that Boaz would want to do that. It was a signal to Naomi that God was beginning to fill her emptiness. All her hopes were about to come true. And then by the end of the story, this empty-handed widow is holding a baby. And the witnesses say, God has not left you without a redeemer, a restorer of life, and a nourisher in your old age. In one redemptive moment, she goes from being empty-handed to being full. And she's not the only one that goes through a great reversal. Ruth does as well. Throughout the book of Ruth, from chapter 1 all the way to the beginning of chapter 4, Ruth is the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. All through the book until we get to chapter 4, Boaz marries her, and now she's just simply Ruth. In other words, outsider, 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 insider. That's how that works. She progressively goes from being outside to being brought in. She goes from being a Moabite foreigner to being an Israelite matriarch, from being a widow to being a wife, and perhaps most importantly, from being barren to having a son who ends up being a redeemer, who ends up giving birth to uh, Jesse, who ends up giving birth to David, through whose line the great redeemer comes. Complete reversal. As we come to the book of Esther, the great reversal theme is even more pronounced. God's people suffer in exile and they're under the threat of a genocidal prince named Haman. When Haman's proclamation to kill the Jews reaches Mordecai, he tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and sits in the ashes, which is a symbol of intense grieving. Now, what's amazing is there's other texts like 1 Samuel 2 that talks about how God raises the poor out of the ashes to make them sit in princely seats. Isn't that what we see in the book of Esther? 
Mordecai sits in the ashes, but that's not where Mordecai stays. The story of Esther is really the story of how Mordecai gets Haman's robe, his crown, and his palace. Mordecai goes from sitting in the dust and the ashes to sitting on a royal horse while the humiliated, arrogant Haman walks in procession in front of him, thinking that that was going to be his moment of glory. And even more ironic, in the end, Mordecai is given the king's ring, the same ring that Haman wore. Mordecai is given Haman's house, and then Haman is hung on the gallows that he built to kill Mordecai. Great reversal. My friends, the point of the book is this. God will exalt the humble, in this case, Mordecai and Esther, and God will humble the self-exalting. Therefore, prideful people, beware. God is sovereign over all, even over the rise and fall of Persian princes, and he is bringing a great reversal. Now, how do we see the message of the gospel in all of this? This is where we'll conclude. The message of the gospel saturates even these Old Testament books. We read these books best when we see ourselves as the Naomi's whose emptiness is being filled. We are the Ruth's who were once outsiders and far off outside of the covenants of promise, but have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2. We are the Esther's who have undergone traumatic abuse, who have been pushed around by tyrants and kings and global powers, who have been hurt by those stronger than us, who held us down and did things that ought not to have been done And yet, God gives us the confidence that even in that pain, he is working redemption. We are the Mordecais who sit in the dust, but who will one day sit in princely seats, sit in dust no more. It's his death and resurrection that sit at the center of all these hopes. In Jesus, bitterness meets its end. He is our refuge in whom we find salvation and rest. His cross and resurrection open the veil so that we can approach the once hidden God. And it is in him, listen to Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 2, it is in him that the humble are exalted out of the ashes and that the self-exalting are humbled. They may be Old Testament books, but Ruth and Esther passionately point us forward to the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And that is why we come to these books. We come to these books because in a time more than ever, we need people who sympathize with our sufferings to point us to Jesus. We need broken widowed Ruth. We need depressed Naomi. We need sexually abused Esther. We need hurting Mordecai, to show us how to find Jesus in this crazy world. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray, Lord, if there is anyone here that is carrying scars and wounds and fears, brokenness, that you will show them how you bring your people out of the ashes and how you bring beauty out of the brokenness. We wait in anticipation for your son to return and to accomplish all that he has done.
for us on the cross and to bring to final fruition his promises. When there will be a great reversal and death will be no more, our once strong enemy will be mortally wounded forever. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.